0: Elena had been frustrated for some time now. She'd started her job a couple years ago and had seen three people hired after her get promotions while she still had none. Today she was excited. The software company she worked for had run into a problem. They provided data storage for corporate customers. They were in expansion mode and had just brought a large new server online. She learned last week that she was assigned with a coder from another section of the company to write the program to get their software to interface with the new server. Elena felt this was her chance. If they could come up with the code to do this quickly and make it work efficiently, she should easily be in line for her promotion. Elena didn't know her new coding partner, but was looking forward to meeting her. When they met, her partner seemed a bit matter-of-fact and emotionally vacant, but Elena figured it didn't matter as long as she was a good coder. They began working on the code, and Elena found her partner a poor communicator. Early in the morning, Elena suggested they work together to make sure they were going in the same direction. Her partner replied, rather gruffly, I'm working on this issue. You find something else to do. We can come together later. In the early afternoon, Elena said they needed to see if their code was working. Just as Elena had suspected, their code didn't work together. What were you thinking? her partner said crossly. Why would you even think of doing it like that? Now you're going to have to do it all over again to make it interface with mine. Elena looked at the code her partner had written. It wasn't very good. Elena's father had always told her to let the other person set the rules. Always default to nice, but if the other person wants to be a jerk, then fine. Be a jerk to them. So Elena retorted, Me rewrite my code? I don't think so. I tried to get you to work with me this morning and you refused. You decided not to work together, and now you can just rewrite your code. This led to a long argument. The entire collaboration project turned out to be a disaster. It took way too long because they were always fighting about how to do it, and the final product was poor because they both had been defensive and critical of each other's work. As they handed in their finished product to their manager, Elena knew she was kissing her promotion goodbye. If only she hadn't been given a partner who was such an incompetent jerk. Scenario 2 In the early afternoon, Elena said they needed to see if their code was working, just as Elena had suspected their code didn't work together. What were you thinking? her partner said crossly. Why would you even think of doing it like that? Now you're going to have to do it all over to make it interface with mine. Elena looked at the code her partner had written. It wasn't very good. Seriously? Elena's chance for a promotion and she gets a jerk to work with? But this was her best shot. She didn't want to blow it. Elena took a deep breath instead of saying what she wanted to. What did she have to lose? She decided to try that what would Jesus do thing. Okay, treat others as you would have others treat yourself. She knew there were times in her life when she had been a jerk. It would have been nice to have a second chance some of those times. Ouch, that kind of hurt, she said with a questioning look that asked, Did you really mean that, or is it something else? Elena saw her partner's shoulders drop a little, and her eyes look down at the floor. After a brief delay, she said, Hey, sorry, I'm having a bad day. Don't worry about it, Elena said, and suggested they grab a bite of lunch before continuing. At lunch her partner apologized and said she was in a terrible mood. After some gentle digging, Elena learned that her partner had just found that her long-term boyfriend had cheated on her. Elena understood. Like too many today, she knew what it felt like to have the one you love be unfaithful to you. This led to a discussion over lunch that her partner really needed and which was also helpful to Elena. When the two returned to work, they discussed how they were going to solve the problems in their coding. Having worked on it all morning, they both knew what a number of the issues were. With their new understanding and collaboration, the two new friends quickly wrote the program. It worked even better than they had expected. After turning in their project, Elena was called in to see her manager. She learned that management had had their eye on Elena for some time. They were all impressed with how she and her partner had overcome the challenges in the program. The new division needed a manager. Did she want the position?
1: Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, Episode 10, The Fullness of Time. Let me start with a couple passages from the Bible. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son. Galatians four four. In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there is no room for them in the inn. Luke 2, 1-7. The Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus came in the fullness of time, and Luke tells us that he was born during the time of Caesar Augustus. So, was this the fullness of time? Let's review. Alexander the Great left an empire encompassing most of the Mediterranean. During the intervening 300 years, the administrators of the empire had brought the Greek language to the educated classes of the entire empire and brought a general gloss of Greek culture to the different people in the empire as well. The Romans had come up and conquered much of the previous Hellenistic empire that had belonged to Alexander's successors. But Rome had been appropriately Hellenized before their period of expansion, so educated people throughout the Roman world still spoke Greek. Then the Roman Empire had their crisis. The Republic fell, and by all rights should have fallen completely, like the Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian, and Athenian empires before them. Yet, sometimes history sends a figure like Alexander the Great that changes everything. For the Romans, this was the emperor... Augustus Caesar. Augustus has to be on everyone's list of greatest administrators of all time, if not the greatest. He reorganized the Roman Empire and established such a well-functioning administrative network that Rome, after Augustus, experienced one of the longest periods of peace that the Mediterranean world has ever known. This period has become known as the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. When Jesus came then, he began teaching in a world that would know peace, mostly, for the next 200 years, and would be teaching in a vast empire that had a common language that at least the educated classes could all speak. Sounds like a great time for a prophet to me. All of the great religious leaders and philosophers have their own unique and original message. Moses gave a nomadic people a law to follow and use to organize themselves. Buddha, gave a way to overcome the suffering that is so much a part of the condition of life. Lao Tzu gave us the message, don't fight, find the harmony. The Bhagavad Gita told us that it's through the development of our character that we can accomplish our purpose. Plato told us that life is an illusion. Aristotle, that we need to use our reason to understand reality. Although it's always misleading and a gross oversimplification to summarize any system of thought, I believe with Jesus it can be done with one word, love. An expert on the law tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Matthew twenty-two thirty-five to 40 Buddhism, of course, was all about reducing suffering, and we certainly saw compassion in Lao Tzu and also some in the Bhagavad Gita. What's striking about the teachings of Jesus, as recorded in the Gospels, though, when compared to the other wisdom literature of its day, is its emphasis on love. A new command I give to you: Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John 13. 34-35. 34-35. Love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 19.19. 19. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. John 15.12. There's too much in the New Testament to cover everything it says about love, so I'll just leave this issue with Paul's beautiful description of love in 1 Corinthians. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love, First Corinthians thirteen four 4-13. This strong emphasis on love is almost unique among the prophets, spiritual leaders, and philosophers of the Axial Age. I say almost because we did see it in the Jewish tradition that Jesus grew out of. When Jesus told us to love our neighbors as ourselves, he was quoting Leviticus nineteen eighteen: Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Don't forget that the Jews were the people who introduced the book of romantic love poetry, Song of Songs, in their canon. As far as I know, they were the only ancient culture to do this. So Jesus' emphasis on love definitely came out of the Jewish tradition. But observe the sea change between the Old Testament and Jesus. Moses said, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people. In this context, it's evident that when Moses said, Love your neighbor as yourself, The neighbors he was referring to were other Hebrews. Jesus, on the other hand, taught us, You have heard that the law says, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you... What reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Matthew five, forty-three through forty-eight. Moses taught the Israelites to love one another. This was certainly a step beyond what other wisdom literature was teaching at the time, but one another meant Hebrews were to love other Hebrews. One was not to bear a grudge against one of his or her own people but what about other people such as the Canaanites? The Old Testament had told the Jews of Moses' day to utterly destroy the Canaanites without pity and to drive them out from the land they had possessed for untold generations. The Old Testament Jews definitely followed the in-group-out-group paradigm that all ancient cultures continued to operate under. Moses gave a set of laws to instruct his people how to live together among themselves, with love being an important part of this. Outgroups, however, were continued to be seen as enemies and threats, as had happened in every culture since Adam and Eve. Jesus, on the other hand, told us not only to stop considering other cultures as outgroups, but also affirmatively told us to stop hating. That is, when we have enemies, stop considering those people, or in the case of cultures, that culture, as enemies, but to learn to affirmatively have compassion for them, to love them even. We think of this as being difficult, but look in the shift in attitude Americans have made toward the Germans and the Japanese between World War II and today. This shift that Jesus taught us between fearing outgroups and caring for them, that is, no longer considering them to be outgroups, is perhaps the most revolutionary social teaching in history. To take a God's eye view of it, assume for a moment that you're a God and you have multiple neighboring states in a given geographical area, say the Mediterranean, that you want to be self-governing. You find that the people in these states have a high reactive aggression and consider people in other states, who mostly speak other languages, to be outgroups. With their high inclination towards reactive aggression, these states go to war with each other regularly. The conquering state sometimes requires the conquered state to pay tribute, and sometimes takes many of the people of the conquered states as slaves, forcing them to live lives of submission and drudgery. Okay, this is a self-governing system, but let's say you want something a little more humane. What do you do? Perhaps we can bring this down to a more manageable scale. When I was younger, I was married to a teacher who taught early primary grades. I also had children in these grades. I got to know teachers well in my personal life and would occasionally see them operate in their classrooms. What I noticed was that adults, the teachers had roughly the same amounts of reactive aggression that the rest of us have. They would get angry and upset at other people in roughly the same rates that the rest of us do. However, put them in charge of 20 to 25 kindergarten to third graders, and you get a gentle, calming force with no reactive aggression. The teachers know they are much more mature than the children, and their students' reactive aggression is not a threat to them. Instead, they see that class has splintered into separate cliques. They work hard to get the students in one clique to bond with students from other cliques to lower in-group, out-group dynamics and reactive aggression. Zooming back out now to the Mediterranean world your fellow gods have placed you in charge of, what do you do? same thing my teacher friends did. You see if you can lower the in-group out-group dynamics between states. Increase trade and commerce between the states. Convince people from one state that those they thought had been enemies in a neighboring state are really friends. People don't go to war with friends. This used to be called the McDonald's rule. Until the Iraq war, we had never gone to war with a country that had a McDonald's. Once there was sufficient commerce and trade with the country for them to have American fast food franchises, there was no longer a sufficient in group out group dynamic for a reactive aggression to get to the point that either country wanted to go to war. This is what Jesus was getting at when he told us to love our enemies. But it's much more than that. Mark tells us the story of calling the tax collector Levi to be a disciple. Tax collectors were reviled in the ancient world. Mark tells us. Though Jesus was clear that his mission was to teach the Jews, we are told in John chapter 4 of a story in which Jesus stays two days with the Samaritans. The Samaritans were a mix of various nationalities that the Assyrians had resettled in the northern kingdom of Israel when they destroyed that kingdom. Some of them were the descendants of Israelites, but their religion was a mix of Judaism and other multiple local religions. To the Jews of Judah, they were anathema apostates who had corrupted the true religion. Yet Jesus stayed with them, teaching his ways for two days. In addition to Samaritans, Jesus repeatedly showed that his disciples were to care for the outcasts and outgroups that were not acceptable in respectable Jewish society. The Gospels tell us several stories of Jesus helping outgroups including Roman soldiers, lepers and the unclean, beggars, and lower-class women but it was what Jesus taught his disciples about outsiders that began the revolution. His disciple Paul began reaching out to spread Jesus' gospel to non-Jewish lands other than Judah. There became some question about how he was going about this, and Paul was recalled from Greece to Jerusalem to discuss this with the other apostles. It was in this meeting that the apostles gave Paul their consent and support in spreading the message to non-Jewish nations. There were also efforts beyond those of Paul. For example, we know that Paul did not travel to Rome until the end of his life, but when he got there, there was a thriving Christian community already. Paul is the one who left a written record, so we know about his journeys, but this makes it clear that there were others. In Jesus, then, there was a teacher 2,000 years ago, teaching that we should disregard in-group-out-group distinctions and accept all people and cultures as our in-group. We should, in other words, be like the herbivore wildebeests on the African savanna and accept all other wildebeests who want to join our herd as one of us, and not be like the pride of lions who is stalking them, and view lions who are not from their pride with suspicion and fear. After he died, Jesus' disciples spread his teachings, including the belief that we should all consider ourselves to be brothers and sisters, that is, we should not consider others to be outgroups. But that's only half the story. The other half of the story is how many people there were who accepted this paradigm. Across the Roman Empire, Greece, Macedonia, Rome, and the Italian peninsula, and into Gaul, modern France, people from all over the empire became converts to this new religion that considered people from different languages and from different culture groups to all be part of one in-group. Buddhism, which had begun in India, was spreading throughout China at about this time. This is perhaps additional evidence indicating a willingness among people in general, not leaders, but perhaps the B personalities among us, to accept that we can be in-groups with those of other cultures and languages. For our purposes in this podcast, the breaking down of in-group-out-group culture is the most important part of Jesus' teachings and the Christian movement that grew out of these teachings. Yet there is so much more to Jesus' teaching, and even more than the Jewish teachings that preceded him, It's all relevant to us because it has come to influence so much of our culture. So let's also look briefly at some of Jesus' other teachings. If love was Jesus' most important teaching, perhaps his second most important lesson, or at least one that he came back to again and again, was compassion. So in everything you do, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the Law and the Prophets, Matthew 7.12. A rich young man came to Jesus and asked him what he had to do to get eternal life. Jesus replied, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said that he had always done these and wondered what he still lacked. Jesus replied, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Matthew 19:16 through 21 Not many of us are likely to be that perfect, but Jesus was clearly indicating that having compassion for the less fortunate is how we're going to gain points with God. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what's done in secret, will reward you. Matthew 6, 3-4. Your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Luke 1233 34 When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Luke 1413 13-14. Since we are compassionate, we should also be merciful to those who do not have our blessings. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Matthew five seven, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew 9.12-13 Then there's this story that Jesus told us in the 25th chapter of Matthew about a king who judged his subjects based on the mercy that they had shown. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came and visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we do these things? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Right up there with compassion was also forgiveness. As Jesus came back to this one over and over again as well. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Matthew sixteen fourteen through 15. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy times seven. Matthew eighteen twenty one to twenty two Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Luke six thirty seven to thirty eight. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day, and seven times comes back and says, I repent, forgive him. Luke seventeen, three. And when you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Mark eleven twenty-five, 25. And don't forget the line in the Lord's Prayer about forgiveness. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. The line doesn't ask for unconditional forgiveness, but for forgiveness in the same measure that we forgive those who have hurt us. Also in Jesus' top ten was humility. Jesus often stressed the importance of being humble. He who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Luke 46 48. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 14 7 11. When you've done everything you were told to do, you should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Luke, seventeen ten. The greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. Luke twenty two twenty six through twenty seven. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Mark nine thirty five. Jesus was also very clear on the topic of judgment. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Matthew 7, 1-2 Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? First, take the plank out of your eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Matthew 7, 3-5 Then, of course, there's the famous story in John chapter 8 of the woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Pharisees took her to Jesus and said, In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Jesus' response was to tell them that the one among them who was without sin should cast the first stone. One by one, they all went away. After they had all left, Jesus asked her, Has no one condemned you? The woman answered, No one, sir. Jesus said he didn't condemn her either and told her to go and sin no more. Then there is this by Paul in the twelfth chapter of his letter to the Romans. And finally, Jesus seemed to know that fear and anxiety were an all-too-common part of the human condition. He addressed these as well. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Luke 12:22 22-26. See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Matthew 6, 28-34 This, of course, doesn't exhaust all of Jesus' teachings on these things. And it doesn't touch at all on a great number of Jesus' other teaching, and it barely touches on all of the other great wisdom literature in the New Testament. But hopefully, it will be enough to give you a taste and what your appetite for this week's reading, which, of course, is the New Testament. If you're short on time, read at least the book of Luke. If I were to give you four source documents to read, they would be Thomas Paine's Common Sense, The Constitution, The Gettysburg Address, and the Book of Luke. If you're an American, I say read the stuff that made us who we are. You could argue that you're not a Christian. So, my reply, this is stuff that has fundamentally shaped our culture. There's a lot of great wisdom literature in the New Testament. You don't have to be a Christian to read through it and decide what's applicable to you. Just as you don't have to be a Taoist to get a lot out of the Tao Te Ching, or a Buddhist to appreciate the teachings of the Buddha. It's all great stuff. But this is more relevant to Americans and Europeans, as these are the teachings that helped shape our culture. Jesus then taught his disciples, who ultimately turned his teachings into a religious movement that spread internationally and brought people together in the Mediterranean Basin during the Roman Empire, the time we're referring to as the fullness of time. Yet Jesus' teachings were a complete sea change from any system of thought that had existed before. But the conditions that existed during the nascent stages of Christianity were crucial to its early widespread acceptance. These conditions were, of course, Hellenistic culture, including the common use of the Greek languages among the upper classes in the Mediterranean basin, and the shared Greek culture that Alexander had left behind. Then, the Romans had created a large, stable empire just at the time Jesus had preached his Sermon on the Mount. This stability would last for another 200 years before significant war would encroach on the Roman Empire. This provided a long period of peace that allowed Christianity to spread. We have, for the first time in history then, a movement that advocates the acceptance of people across borders, languages, and ethnic groups. The mass acceptance of this new religion throughout the Roman Empire shows a willingness of people to overcome the in-group, out-group paradigm. Is humanity, then, during the Roman Empire on the verge of considering all men and women, brothers and sisters, and declaring universal peace and harmony? Spoiler alert, don't bet on it. This is a first step. Western culture will still have millennia to struggle with the in-group, out-group paradigm. But at least one step, one very important step, has now been taken. See you next week.